month we've got something a little different for you. It is Ada Lovelace Day and we are coming to you straight from Ada Lovelace Day Live. We're going to be talking to chemical engineer Yasmin Ali and Miranda Lowe who's a curator at the Natural History Museum. We're also going to have a chat with some of our audience members to see which women in STEM they admire and why. And we'll bring you highlights of tonight's performances. We have an absolutely amazing lineup, and we will also have videos of every single talk up on YouTube just as soon as we can. So settle in and enjoy Ada Lovelace Day Live. So I'm here backstage at Ada Lovelace Day Live with Yasmin Ali, who is a chemical engineer. Hi, Yasmin. Hi. <laughs> well, I know what chemists are and I know what chemicals are and I know what an engineer is. I'm not quite sure I know what a chemical engineer is. I don't think many people do. So a chemical engineer takes raw materials and turns them into useful products. So it's a little bit of everything. So anything that was manufactured probably involved a chemical engineer at some stage along the way. So things like toothpaste, water purification, making chocolate, energy, all of that stuff involves chemical engineers because you are taking a raw material and turning it into something useful. Right, So, because I think I would normally assume this is about sort of plastics and stuff, but I'm sure chemical engineering has a much broader remit than just making plastic bags. Definitely, yeah. So plastics is something that a chemical engineer would be involved in, but the list is endless. It kind of baffles me just to think about all of the different things that chemical engineers can do. So I was reading recently about um, an engineering department who are making a medical glue that's inspired by slugs. So there are chemical engineers who look to nature and copy what is happening in nature to make useful stuff for, for our lives. Right, wow, wow. That reminds me a little bit of um, Rob Seuss Kundu who looks to uh, nature for inspiration for nanotechnology. What part of chemical engineering are you involved in? I am involved in energy. So uh, when I was at university, I worked in a gas-fired power station for a summer. And excuse the pun here, but um, <laughs> it was a bit of a light bulb moment when I realized that we rely on these power stations for our energy. And absolutely everything we do is underpinned by energy. And I thought, right, this is what I want to do. And that was the industry I joined. And I've been doing that for seven years now. Interesting, because I would have naively assumed that, you know, we know what oil is and we know how to burn it. So where, where does the chemical engineering come in? Oh, no, there's so, so much more to it than that. <laughs> I mean, we still struggle to get it out of the ground. So I've worked in oil and gas uh, exploration and production as well. And just the intricacies of how you drill the type of chemicals and materials that you need for those processes. There's a vast amount of technologies and uh, areas that chemical engineers can be involved in. There's still a lot we don't know and um, it's still quite difficult. Things like how you drill into the ground to get oil out and the types of chemicals and materials you need to use. This all involves chemical engineers. Um, also like in a power station, things like the ratio of gas to um, air that you mix together to burn can all have an impact on the efficiency of a power station. So these are all things that chemical engineers can do. And of course with extraction, it is not the same as sticking a straw in 
a glass of water and sucking. That's not how we get oil out of the ground, is it? Um, and no, it's not quite that easy, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah, there's a lot more to it than that. Where I've worked before has been in the middle of the sea, so you've got a battle with the layers and layers of water that are in your way. You then have to drill through miles of rock and you have to drill in different directions to get to the fuel that you're looking for. So how did you end up as a chemical engineer? It was all a bit of an accident actually. Um, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was younger and I had a leaflet from a campaign called Why Not Chemeng? And I looked at this leaflet, this like blue and orange leaflet that came through the post and I was quite impressed by all of the different industries that a chemical engineer can work in. And it also said that they had uh, one of the highest paying graduate salaries. So uh, my, my younger self was um, apparently a little bit driven by money. <laughs> so I decided to go and study that and just see what happens. And I haven't really looked back since. What is it particularly that you enjoy so much about chemical engineering? I think it's the variety. Um, yeah, like every day is different. And also the people that I've met. It's been really great working with people who are experienced and who take the time to teach me. Um, that's probably the best fit is the people. Where do you see your career going? Where would you like to be? I've just quit my job. <laughs> so, <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've been in the same company for seven years doing different roles. Uh, but I think I feel like it's time to move on to something new. Um, and I would like to work for a, maybe a startup. Some, I want to stay in energy. Mm. I think it's a, such a big topic and I definitely want to contribute to a global, sustainable energy future. That's something I feel really passionate about. Maybe I'd like to do that in a, in a smaller setting instead of in a giant company. So what do you think is going to be the, the future of energy? Um, I think it's important to have a mix of technologies. Uh, there's no one right answer and it's going to depend on the region uh, so you know if you live in a windy area then take advantage of that if you live in the Sahara Desert take advantage of the energy that comes from the sun um, but also I think we need to look at the way we consume energy we are a very wasteful society we overproduce stuff and throw it away and we just use way too much energy and that's something each one of us has to look at and has to change. Yeah, I feel guilty every time I put anything in the bin these days. It's a constant, um, I wish I didn't have to buy that bit of packaging or, or that bit of plastic because yeah. that, that's obviously a exactly, major yeah. issue. I've been told Japan is very good at managing waste and maybe we should look to that country and learn from them. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of exciting things in your future. What are you most excited about? I think the most exciting bit is that I don't know what's going to happen. So <laughs> if you'd asked me 10 years ago, am I going to be sitting in the Royal Institution about to go and make some ice cream to demonstrate chemical engineering, I would never have guessed that. So I think the future holds some exciting things that I don't know about <laughs> and I'm just copped out of answering that question. <laughs> it's the best kind of feature, the one where you don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, and so ice cream, how does that relate to chemical engineering? So that is a thing that is manufactured. Uh, so in industry, 
it would be made in a factory. Um, it would be different steps of a process. So, you know, you would mix your materials together, create a change in state. So turn your liquid mixture into a solid frozen ice cream. So that's all, it's a process and a chemical engineer will have to calculate the right temperatures and pressures, calculate the right quantities of things to mix together. So I guess in a way chemical engineering is a bit like baking, but on a, a much larger scale. And if someone's listening and they're thinking, oh yeah, I kind of like the sound of baking on a giant scale, what would they study? What, how, what would they do to get into chemical engineering? Um, so the way I did it was to study sciences and maths at A-level and then went to university to do a chemical engineering degree. Um, so that's one, that's the traditional routes. But there are also apprenticeships with, you know, chemical engineering companies that you could join at, at the age of 16 or 18. Mm. Uh, so there are multiple routes. And there are also people who've gone and done maybe a physics or chemistry degree and then go on to do a master's in chemical engineering. So all roads lead to chemical engineering. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I hope not all of them, otherwise none of us will get home tonight. Um, Thank you so much for your time, Yasmin. It's been a pleasure. My name is Apra Bennett and the woman in science that has inspired me is Catherine Johnson. I first heard about her in Hidden Figures and I was inspired by her determination and her will to carry on despite all the obstacles that she had to face and she's actually inspired me today to come here as a speaker for Aidan Lovelace Day 2017. My name's Alison Leary and uh, my inspirational woman in STEM is Florence Nightingale because she was the first nurse mathematician and she saved an awful lot of people's lives by the use of statistics and I'm a mathematical modeler, so I'm really keen on her work. And she did an awful lot at a time when this kind of work for women really wasn't that acceptable. I'm Rosie Smeaton, and for an inspirational woman, I'd pick Jennifer R. Curie. Um, she's a big voice in cybersecurity. Um, she's a serial entrepreneur, and she founded Hacker House which is a makerspace for cybersecurity experts and they train up kids in how to work in cyber. Sean Davison. Uh, I'd pick Rita Levy Montalcino. Not only is she one of the few women with a Nobel Prize, she also was working at times when she wasn't supposed to be working. She lived underground in Germany in the war. She was basically trying her best to work on things like chicken embryos to find out all these things about how life is created, what life does. and has lived quite an impressive and fascinating life. I'm Laura Glynn. So I'd say it's the lack of women within science that inspires me more than the appearance of them. So, for example, in my A-level physics class, I'm the only girl in a class of, like, 25. So it makes you more competitive. You've got to do well in that case. You've got to get better than everyone else. That's what inspires me, really. So I'm Kelvin Colcott. I'm a software developer. And the woman that's inspired me the most, I suppose, is Ada Lovelace, the first real programmer on a not-so-electronic computer. She made the first programs on something mechanical. This is basically like using an abacus to, to write programs. So yeah, Ada Lovelace. I'm Kate Byrne. Uh, We're excited to come along today. We actually came to the event last year and had a great time, so we were pleased to be able to come back. Uh, I'm inspired by Sue Black, 
and the fantastic way that she speaks out for all women in STEM, but also the many wonderful women that I work with or are out there in the field just doing it every day. I'd like to welcome our second guest to the podcast this month, Miranda Lowe, who is a curator at the Natural History Museum in London. Hi, Miranda. Oh, hi, Sue. So, what kind of a curator are you? Oh, well, I'm a curator that looks after the marine invertebrate collection. So what that means, animals without backbones. And when you drill down to the specifics of it, I look after collection of things that are actually pickled in jars. So things like crabs, shrimps, lobsters, jellyfish, you name it, um, I've got it. And also a few dry collections, so things like corals and um, Charles Darwin's barnacles. They're actually kept dry as well. Wow. I think we're all familiar with the word curator and we might have an idea about what a curator does. I'm not sure that that would be accurate. So what do you do as a curator? Well, I wear many hats throughout the day. So one of the my roles as a curator is to allow is to allow international scientists access to the collections behind the scenes. So that can be anything from um, going into the collection and selecting some material akin to um, their specific research, take the jars off the shelves. So all the material is kept in um, what's a bit like a chiller um, so that the, the preservation fluid, which can either be um, a weak solution of formaldehyde or 80% uh, ethanol or industrial methylated spirits, and we take that out of um, the collection store, that chilled collection store, and into the lab for the scientists to examine under the microscope. But for my own research personally, I look at amphipods, which are tiny shrimpy things in the ocean. They're very important to measure water quality and they have a huge diversity. And then on the other scale, when you're moving away from the ocean, I also look at terrestrial forms of invertebrates such as wood lice. So the things that you see running around in your garden when you lift up a flower pot and they are actually crustaceans too. I have to admit, I didn't really understand that curators also do research. Yes, so that's kind of, uh, that's part of my role, small part of my role. M mainly we do collaborations with other researchers internationally or with universities too that are going on, on cruises, on expeditions, because a lot of our historical um, collections have come from expeditions themselves, such as the Challenger Expedition, um, where it's considered in 1872 it was the first time that scientists were going on a voyage to actually explore the world's oceans and they had specific scientific questions they wanted to answer. And on that Challenger expedition, they discovered 4,500 new species to science alone. So the expedition was from 1872 to 1876. And so we have a lot of that collection still at the museum. It's very important because the type specimens are what we call the name-bearing species. So it's an animal that research scientists will refer to for forever to compare to current species that they're finding to actually name their, their new species or not or if it's the same. So what, what do you think of the, for you personally, what are the, the most exciting items that you're curating that are in your collection? Well the most exciting are thinking about um, when people visit and I show them Charles Darwin's barnacles because that is really exciting in itself. Charles Darwin spent eight years actually studying these animals, 
quite obsessively, so much so that his children actually thought that that was the normal thing for for families and their dads to do. Um, And um, he was rather ill at the time while he was studying these organisms, but he was, well, he was a special man in all the things that he studied, but he was quite unique in the fact that the trustees of the British Museum at the time, where the collection was before it moved to South Kensington, they uh, gave him permission to have the whole barnacle collection sent to him at Down House so that he could study and classify and learn about all the reproductive biology of the barnacles, classify them to species, their animal groupings and so forth. He could do that at his leisure within his home. And it's quite exciting to be able to handle that collection still today. And the collection is still referred to. The majority of it is kept dry on wooden boards, but it's still very special. How do you become a curator? How how did you particularly become a curator? I wanted a permanent job in science. I've had really vivid childhood memories of visiting the Natural History Museum, so I have to thank my parents for that. And just always wondered as a child, what's behind those big brown doors? And it was literally um, for a lot of temporary jobs in science. I thought, I really want a permanent one. And I was looking at the back of a New Scientist magazine. So that's where, you know, the majority of the scientific jobs are. And I saw an advert for an assistant curator in the marine invertebrate section. I must admit, I didn't know that much about it. (laughs) But I I was very brave, took a chance. But because of those special childhood memories and experiences of visiting a museum, it made me sort of think, well, there must be something even greater behind those doors, something mind-blowing. And and, and it's true. And the work that I do, you know, has an impact on um, world science. It's relevant to all of us, what I do. And it's really special that, um, you know, I have the skills to actually curate collections so that they can last another 200, 400, mm. even longer years so that other people after me can access. And you've got to make sure that the data is correct as well because inaccurate data can influence a lot of things of species diversity and measuring um, any changes in, in the world's oceans. So I guess you know, the, the thing that comes to mind when I think about what a curator does is you know, picking particular things to go on public display. How much of your job is that? That's a small proportion of my job. So I do get involved with the public exhibition programme and, and that's really exciting for me as my, myself because that provides a bit of diversity in my role. So it's not just uh, you know, preserving things in jars. It's being actively involved in the process of putting on an exhibition about specific themes. For instance, in 2013, the museum had a coral reef um, exhibition, and so that was the most in recent times, most a specimen-rich exhibition, and that was great because we were able to pick. Um, you know, a wealth of uh, specimens that were behind the scenes that hardly anybody sees on a day-to-day basis to bring that out into the public domain. Um, It's also very interesting to see how the exhibition, the gallery interpretation um, staff work and the kind of audiences they want to appeal to with the scientific information that's going to be relayed through the exhibition. 
because often you don't want it to be overcomplicated. So I have a common language that I might speak um, in terms of scientific names with my colleagues. But when you're relaying that to the public, there has to be you know a little bit of difference and some really special items shown to give them a hook to understand and also to get the audiences to look at exhibitions. So you're collaborating with a team that is specifically thinking about how to communicate to the public and, and which exhibitions are going to be put on and when. Yes, yes, most definitely. That's um, a small part of my role. And, I, and I, really, I really love it. It's quite exciting, especially when an exhibition actually opens and you, you get the feedback, you hear your family and friends that have visited the exhibition, how much they've learned, how pleased they are to see something that they thought might never have existed in the ocean. That's always amazing because there's a lot of things that live really deep in the ocean that we sometimes fail to appreciate. So actually seeing that organism there in front of you with your very own eyes in an exhibition can be very inspiring to one. So what's coming up for you in the future? What, what are you looking forward to? The next um, exciting thing is the opening of uh, the Wildlife Photographer of the Year at the Natural History Museum. So I'll be involved in the launch there and, and that is um, you know, beauty on, the, on another scale there through photographic images um, for photographers that are interested in the natural world and, and showing different elements of it. And um, so with that we can also use on behind the scene tours some of the specimens to complement that kind of exhibition. We've also got a Venom exhibition that's opening very soon too and so there'll be again a wealth of venomous um, specimens. So some of my um, particular specimens that I look after that will be on display are some of the really poisonous, um, uh, the stingers of uh, box jellyfish, Portuguese man of war, so that will be on display too. That sounds absolutely mm. fantastic. Um, I, I recommend everyone go yes, because definitely. it'll be amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, Rhonda. It's been great yeah. talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Wonderful stuff. Um, it is an absolute pleasure to be back hosting Ada Lovelace Day this year. Uh, from the very first one that I hosted, uh, since then I've been the person who gets in the way of all the great science and speakers. So I'm going to sing this song and you are going to cheer on your favourite element. La 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 Lanthanum repeatedly, by the way. That's not that's not how I'm getting through it. Okay, here we go. I have really mess. Cheers than normal so far. <laughs> and iodine and thorium and thorium and thorium. La 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 la. We're only two thirds of the way through. <laughs> no, one third of the way through. There's itrium, iterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, and lithium, beryllium, and barium. La 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 la. What is that? A massive cheer for barium. That's extraordinary. That you know the biggest cheer I've ever had in my career.
career was when I did this song at the Leeds Hospital NHS Gastroenterology Department <laughs> Christmas party. I said barium and they lost their minds. It was incredible. All right, okay, you've got a chance. If you haven't heard yours yet, you've got your chance. Um, uh, what I'd like to know, to you, can every, anyone who heard their element too late to cheer, give us a cheer now. <laughs> I love that. There's, I'm going to speed up for this bit. cheering for polonium because it was one of the, the, the elements named after Marie Curie, after her home country, Pol Poland, uh, or whether you're a Russian spy and you've just given yourselves away. <laughs> and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium. Okay, last bit. I left oxygen back somewhere at the beginning. <laughs> there, oh, oh, right, um, if you give me a hand here, could you put your hands about 12 inches apart, please? Um, and if you could, for me, clap on every element, <laughs> you're allowed to get slightly faster. <laughs> There's... <laughs> Not that fast. <laughs> There's... Were you just doing, like, the, the, the large hadron or something? Were you just getting that out of the way? There's... Sulfur, Californium, and Fermium, Berkelium, and also Mendelevium, Einsteinium, Norelium, and Arthur, Kryptonium, Radon, Zinn, and Synchronium, and Chlorine, Carbon, Carbon, Copper, Dysentin, and Sodium. Oh my gosh! Wow, how unexpected! Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, we have a problem. Uh, <laughs> this song was written in 1959. Another 16 elements have been discovered. Obviously, if you're a good scientist and your work turns out to be either out of date or has been uh, proven to, to be incorrect, you publish an addendum, uh, you retract your research, and you write an extra verse. <laughs> There's Laurentium, Mitnerium, Dunsteinium, Seabobium, Grunt, Geminium, and Dubnium, Florobium, and Borium, Cope. If anyone cheers for any of these, you are playing the long game, aren't you? <laughs> Copenisium, Livermorium, and Hassium, Rutherfordium, Organison. Incredible. And Tennessine, Muscovium, Nihonium. Nope. I mean, that was literally named in January. You have. Surely you've changed allegiance to that element at some point in your life. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, the unfortunate thing about this is, of course, the song will never be finished because potentially there are more elements out there. <laughs> so I'd like to add those elements which soon may be discovered. But it took so long to learn this song, I really can't be bothered. La 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 Thank you very much. We've started bold. We're going to cover life and death specifically death with the first speaker. <laughs> this is someone uh, who spends time finding out uh, all about our bodies and our cities, and she's going to tell you about how it is that we know so much about them, standing on the shoulders of giants, female giants. Ladies and gentlemen, put your hands together for Brenna Hassett. Hello. 
Hello, can we all hear me? Uh, usually, American accent, this is not much of a problem. Um, so, yes, I have a very short amount of time to tell you everything that happened to you in the last 15,000 years, and also why women scientists are awesome. So, so we will move quickly through that. Um, well, I thought we would. There we go. So um, this is a little bit of a, a book talk. This is something that I just wrote a book on, so if you're interested, it's there. But basically, everything is killing you. Um, some of us may have suspected this. Some of us may have kind of seen this coming. Um, and what I do is dig up dead people. I'm an archaeologist, so I'm, I'm interested in looking at the long story, the history of basically us. And I do that by looking at the bodies, sort of the evidence that is actually written into our bones. So if we, if we take our sort of modern selves with our, you know, sort of obesity crises and our air pollution and everything that is wrong with uh, terrestrial TV right now, um, you know, what happened? What happened to our species? What is, you know, we had this beautiful hunter-gatherer lifestyle going on. We were, we were like super lean. We had great leg muscles. Um, uh, the selfie probably not actually invented. Uh, so, you know, what happened? And it turns out that if you get enough dead bodies together, you can actually start to answer some of these questions. And that's kind of what my science is. So let's take a look. The last 15,000 years is an amazing story. This is 2% of the time our species has been on this planet. The last 2%, 98% of the time we were doing something else. It's a long story, basically. Uh, by the way, this is what happens if you take professors to Jordan. Uh, they watch the graduate students dig out the Jeeps. This is what archaeology is actually really like. So, let's get started. Revolutions. 15,000 years ago, thereabout, we did the first revolution, which is settling down, living in one place. And this actually fundamentally changes our body. If you think about bones and teeth as sort of, uh, you know, evidence of how we move and uh, live, you can see that bone is a use it or lose it type of thing. If you're using your muscles, they're interacting with the bone, and we can actually start to see changes in our bodies. So our hunter-gatherer ancestors, they're walking around, they're walking around a lot, uh, they're using their legs. Guess what you don't have to do if you're no longer chasing herds of reindeer? You're living in a settled place. That's right, we got skinny legs. There's another revolution, and I think a lot of us have probably heard more about this than anything else. Uh, hands up, people have heard of paleo diet? Yeah, about that. I hope you like porcupine. Um, <laughs> as, as paleo diet is one of those things. It's like, you know, we spent uh, literally millions of evolutionary years of, of sort of our history trying not to starve to death. And uh, apparently, apparently that's not good enough anymore. It needs to come in a foil wrapper with no gluten. But um, so this, this is the second revolution. And this one is farming. This is Muge, she is sitting in central, well, she's leaning in central Anatolia. She is growing experimental ancient wheat, which was very boring, so I took a picture and sort of wandered away for her to finish her science. Um, but Muge is um, scientifically recreating something that had a huge effect on our physical bodies. And these, you know, this is grain. This is a solid source of calories that we basically can sit down in our little sedentary uh, places and consume. This is an amazing shift for us but it messes us up. Um, yeah, does, does anyone have a vague idea that something might be going terribly wrong with this jaw? Yes. Brush your teeth, really. I, I'm very serious about the toothbrushing thing. This is your jaw on carbs. 
So one of the things we do is we change our diet and actually changes um, the types of diseases we get. One of those diseases is caries. If you eat a bunch of sugary, carby foods, it changes the plaque sort of uh, in your mouth. It changes sort of the pH balance and lets bacteria grow in the plaque, which start chewing holes in your teeth. We start to see caries, cavities, appear with kind of the invention of agriculture. And of course, that's not the only thing that changes. We've got sort of um, all sorts of health-related changes, our new skinny legs. We've got more food, but maybe it's not as good. And this is something that we can actually pull out in the archaeological record. Of course, all these revolutions had to come to something. And the thing that they do for us is they build more people. All those extra carbs, they were the greatest thing we ever did if the end game is making more of us. So as we start to sort of come together and live in these dense places, we do a bunch of things. Um, not all of them are good for us. This is the most boring slide I could find. You're welcome. Um, this is the reality of archaeology. It's beige. It is always beige. Uh, but what I am going to call attention to is this. This is actually the next revolution, and it's the thing that has the biggest impact on our bodies in the last 15,000 years. Uh, it's storage. It's Tupperware. It's Neolithic Tupperware. But the interesting thing about this storage is we get all these people together. We have all these new resources. And what happens is we start to get the resources not that everyone gets to have, you know, just like out in the open for everybody to share. These are storage bins from an 8,000-year-old site called Chadohoyuk, and they are in someone's house. That means they are someone's resources. And if they are someone's, they are not yours. This is the major difference. We actually can start to see, essentially, inequality is the thing that affects our bodies. It leads to malnutrition, it leads to diseases, and these diseases end up in the bones. So looking at this trajectory, you know, we, we get huge amounts of epidemics and plagues and all these things that are killing us. Why would we do it? And I've got one last story that might kind of explain this. And we have jumped all the way from the beginnings of cities to the end. Well, it's not the ends of cities, it's London. <laughs> um, these are match workers. They are standing over vats of white phosphorus. I do not recommend standing over a vat of white phosphorus. Uh, it's poisonous and it can actually seep through your tissue. So these men are making matches. You can see they've got these little trays. They're going to put the matches in and dip them to have the sort of strikeable heads. This is what happens to their jaws. That's fossy jaw. Now, this was a well-known condition. This was something that people actually knew about. And this is the thing that's really interesting about cities. We have all these people, and we, we have this inequality that drives diseases, pollution, poor living standards. And we have things like this, where this, these people's jaws are literally rotting in their mouths. Gross. Um, but what happens is, in a city, you start to see the, the stirrings of things that start to try and change the way we live. So this is the match girl strike. This is the beginning of organized labor movement, and it was actually led by women. It was led by pioneering campaigning uh, woman uh, journalist who saw what was going on with these people and started a force for change. And that's one of the things that actually living in cities has allowed us to do, possibly not fast enough. But what I, what I really want to talk about, because we're here on Ada Lovelace Day, is of course all of the women 
who have led up to these kinds of amazing discoveries. Um, so I thought I'd start with a Nazi snubbing sword fighting Muslim woman because she's awesome and probably my favorite. This is Helen Chambel. 1936, Berlin Olympics, one of the first two Muslim women Olympians ever. Yes, she's an archaeologist. <laughs> she trained Ufik Essin, who, uh, yes, is the smallest of the people visible. Um, and Ufik Essin is the woman who started the dig that I now work on. She trained Mirabanos Basharan. That's Dino. Dino's the site dog. Dino's awesome. Um, she trained Miraban, and it ends up you know, with a legacy of me, I am standing on the shoulders of these amazing women who brought scientific archaeology so we could find these things. And it's not just me. Um, I mean, obviously, for job purposes, I kind of wish it would be sometimes. But there's actually, there are amazing women. And so the other project that I'm part of is Trailblazers. And this is a, an organization that is dedicated to bringing out the histories of some of these women. And they are awesome. I mean, okay, so we got... Zonia Baber looks awesome with a mattock, suffragist, uh, you know, huge rights campaigner. Uh, we got Honor Frost, may or may not have fought an octopus, this is unclear. But I mean, like pioneer in underwater archaeology. Virginia Grace wore a snake, why not? Um, and we've got these amazing stories. That's, she's a sharpshooter. That's, that's just a thing. She, she sort of, uh, she's... This is Jane Delfoy, I have to say, she's one of my favorites. She once got ambushed by uh, sort of about six dudes while on her way to a site in Persia. But she was really good. She had two revolvers, and she said, yeah, come back with six more friends. <laughs> I love this lady. But these are the stories of women that get lost somewhere in our history. We talk about, you know, old white dudes in pith helmets, which is a cool subject. But there's so much more. So right now, Trailblazers is always looking for more information, more stories. And we are running the Raising Horizons exhibit, which you can see it is touring around the country. Um, and we just we want people to sort of look at these women and look at their histories and look at the science they're doing and just realize you're not alone. Science has been done by women for a really long time. And that's our message for Ada Lovelace Day. So thank you to our fabulous speakers this month. And thank you also to Arm, our exclusive semiconductor industry sponsor. You can find out more about Arm at their website, arm.com, and you can follow them on Twitter, at Arm Holdings. Thanks also to our editor, Andrew Marks. And thank you to you for listening.